So tonight, um, it's going to be a little bit story time. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to find a balance what to talk to on this night when half of you got one foot out the door and the other half of you are really deep in silent retreat. So anyway, what I want to talk about is something that makes me very happy to talk about, which is, um, you know, we, we, we're always referring to the Buddha as the source of our teachings and practice. And as we always say, you know, he's a real person, but sometimes to me, you can almost get, start to get the feeling of myth, you know, um, he's so perfect. So, um, what I want to talk about tonight is some of the nuns, some of the women who were nuns uh, during the time of the Buddha. We know about, if you read the suttas, various of the monks and nuns, if you really go through it, you get a sense of them just being real normal people, except the ones you hear about are all enlightened, okay? You don't hear about the others. <laughs> but, but the... Uh, different um, personalities, different reasons in their life that they came to uh, the Buddha's teaching and the practice, different courses of practice, some easy, some difficult. But it gives to me a sense of these as real people. And even though it was a long time ago, the external conditions are different, but internally we haven't changed very much in here. So, so I just want to talk, there's a lot, but I just want to talk about a few of the stories of some of the different nuns and read their poems because there's some poems from nuns and some poems from monks that are in the suttas. They're uh, uh, enlightenment poems. So it just, to me, it gives a real, um, a life, a voice to these distant people. It's not just some people who gather around the Buddha 2,600 years ago and we give lip service to it, but we really know for us it's hopeless because they were so much better and different, you know. And I just, just, I just love uh, sharing about them. So there were, of course, many women who joined the order of nuns, and they had all different ways of manifesting, just as we all do. Some uh, were very strong women, became great leaders, became great teachers, either in the way they spoke the Dhamma or in uh, sharing compassionately with other women who joined. Some were just very quiet, simple practitioners. You know, you don't hear much about them except for their poems. Some were young, some were old, some were rich, some were poor. The whole gamut of different kinds of people. So just want to share a little bit some of the poems that I particularly like and give a sense of, of the women. So to start, of course, you have to start, one has to start with the woman who was responsible for convincing the Buddha to begin an order of nuns because he didn't do so right away. And I don't want to spend too much time with uh, Mahapajapati Gotami because her story is the most well-known but she was the stepmother, really the aunt of the Buddha. And his mother died when he was a week old. And her sister, who's Mahapajapati Gotami, was also married to the Buddha's father, King Suddhodana. I guess kings at that time, or leaders, whatever they were, had various wives and various courtesans, and it was, well, they had a whole show going on. Um, 
so anyway, she was the, uh, she, the stepmother. She raised the Buddha, married to the king. And um, at some point in this period in India, uh, the uh, strata of society was extremely rigidly uh, held in terms of, of caste system. And women's roles were really defined in uh, relationship, their social status was decided by their male relatives. They didn't really have much autonomy and freedom at all. And so it would be, you know, your father, then your husband, then your son. And so, uh, of course, uh, Mahapajapati Gotami was quite devoted when the Buddha left the family and came back as the Buddha and was teaching. Of course, he was teaching to his family and his son became a monk and got enlightened and his father got enlightened and Mahapajapat Gotami began to get enlightened. You know, they were all quite devoted. So at some point, her uh, husband died, the king, and her son, well, the, the Buddha was, her, her uh, stepson was already the Buddha and his son became a monk. And then her son and her nephew also became monks. So she didn't really have any man. In one way, she didn't have a social status. In another way, she's like, wow, free, <laughs> free at last. I can try and do what I want. And there were a lot of other uh, women in similar situations. She was really a leader. Um, so there was a period when her side of the family and the Buddha's father's side of the family, the two clans, got into a dispute, really a war, over the water rights in a particular river. So even, you know, that's how it was then, that's how it is now. And quite some men got killed. But the Buddha came and gave a very inspiring discourse to the men who were fighting, to, which we don't have recorded, but to, to stop the fighting, to stop the war, which he did. And they all got really inspired. And as the, <laughs> as the texts say, they all went off and became monks. <laughs> so that left a whole other bunch of you know, wives and mothers and daughters and like, okay, well now what? <laughs> so they were all quite inspired too. But at this point, there wasn't a bhikkhuni sangha, a nun sangha. So, um, Pajapati Gotami got really inspired and went to the Buddha and requested that he, he said it would really be good, Lord, to ordain a women's sangha. And again, I don't want to go into the whole thing because it's a whole discussion. But for whatever reason, he was very reluctant to do so. So he said, no, you know, I really don't think so. And I think it was societal. So at that point, he wouldn't do it. But she, and this is where her, her courage, but also her faith, because she was filled with faith. She wasn't like being arrogant and demanding, but it's the, the, the dedication, really, uh, the, adi, the parami of aditana, of resolution, which is a very powerful sense of knowing wholesomely what one must do and then having the courage and the energy to do it. I mean, that can be as simple in your practice as we're talking today when you're getting lost in a particular train of thought for the 7 million and 35th time. And you see it, and the mind goes, no, I don't need to go there. It's not aversion. It's a collecting of energy really clearly around wholesome, just, no, I don't need to do this. Or yes, I need to do this. It's a really powerful um, quality in the mind. So she possessed this quality, this... this um, 
resolution, but it was really based in her devotion, in her faith, not only in the Buddha, but in the teachings, in awakening. So she basically, as we say, wouldn't take no for an answer. So the Buddha went off on, on as he did, what, 200 miles away to, you know, he's always traveling. So she got a bunch of women followed her because she was a great leader and they shaved their heads and put on orange robes and walked barefoot the 200 miles to where the Buddha was. And she got to outside where he was um, teaching and just stood there quietly but crying. And this is where, again, you get a sense of the people because Ananda, who was the Buddha's uh, attendant for the last 25 years of his life, also a cousin, but he really took total care and love of the Buddha, but he was also the person through which many people would kind of have to go to get access to the Buddha. And one thing I love reading about Ananda, comparing it, I've been in around different kind of scene, guru scenes, where there's like a big teacher and as they get more well-known, I don't really mean a Vipassana, but it's more like a kind of guru thing and people want to, get close to them. And as they're well known, there's always a little inner circle or the people, and they're like protecting them usually. Their job is to control access, you know? Who gets in, who doesn't get in. Ananda saw his job is get people in to hear the Dhamma. You never hear him saying, oh no, you can't come, he's too busy now. It's always get him in, come hear the Dhamma. You know, he was like a very beloved person. And being the Buddha's um, cousin, he would also be related to Mahapajapati, Mahapajapati Gotami. <laughs> anyway, so he saw her out there crying. And this is where he really interceded. And he came and said, uh, Blessed one, is it true? Let me see, let me get the, the wording right. He said, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arhantship? You know all those from Bonte's talk the other night, right? It's a test. And, um, <laughs> and the Buddha said, yes, Ananda, of course. And then Ananda said, well then, since women are able to realize perfection, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, your nurse, your foster mother. You know, she even suckled you at, at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. And so basically, okay, you put it that way. <laughs> but, okay, I'm, I'm rephrasing it. <laughs> but I imagine it was more or less like that. But, the thing is, once he agreed, that's the point. He's absolutely clear, and this was a, a kind of a radical aspect of the Buddha altogether, that in terms of uh, wisdom and compassion and potential for understanding and awakening, there's no difference in terms of sex or gender. There's no difference in terms of what caste or level of society one belonged to. There was no difference in terms of if you were rich or poor, if you were a great the Brahmin caste who controlled the spirituality at that time, or you were the lowest, not even the caste, the so-called outcast called Dalits now that people wouldn't want anything to do with. He said, no difference. And so once 
he began the Sangha of nuns, it was in the same way, open to anyone, any woman who was sincere, coming from any background, sincere in wanting to practice, sincere in faith. And so once he embraced it, then the Sangha of nuns grew quite rapidly. So of course, uh, Mahapajapati was a great leader because she was the one who had the courage and the energy to begin it, and many women came with her. So I'll just read her a little bit of her poem. I won't read all of it. But. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all beings, who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother. Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the blessed one. This is my last body and I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at the disciples all together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is true homage to the Buddhas. I like that last line because that's you. All the disciples together, your energy, your sincere effort. This is the best homage we can give to all the Buddhas. So Gotami really uh, manifested enormous energy, courage, and dedication, and this, this resolution. And so because of her, many, many women had the opportunity to join the Sangha. And they were from all classes and all life situations. There were some who were like queens or consorts to kings. I'm a little hazy. There's some difference between queens and consorts to kings. But anyway, they're very well off high up there. <laughs> there were very respectable middle class women, son, daughters of bankers, wives of uh, wealthy businessmen. There were very poor women. There were prostitutes, both well-to-do courtesans and very poor prostitutes. There were uh, really like indentured servants, almost like slaves. There were women who came who were literally insane with grief, really old women, really young women, the whole range. And as the same as with the bhikkhu sangha the, the, of the monks, once someone entered the Sangha, their past dif differentiation in society by age, by wealth, by caste was completely, had nothing to do, did not obtain. So in a society where like the Brahmin caste would have nothing to do with the lowest caste, you know, he would say, you, you come in as a nun or a monk and your age in the Sangha begins from that day that you ordain. So everyone is ordained ahead of you, all the women that are ordained ahead of a particular nun are senior, all the ones who are ordained below are junior. So maybe there's a woman who was an indentured servant and her job was really, you know, cleaning out the latrines and the woman who ordained after her was a queen, no matter. 
That's gone, you know? In terms of wealth, in terms of race, in terms of history, there was just no differentiation. And that was quite radical at that time. So for the men, it was the same for the women, although they were kept separate, obviously, at that time, everything was. So this, there's a couple of other nuns who were very influential. The next one I want to talk about, her name was Patachara. And in terms of, of the poems, uh, she's the nun who's most frequently referred to by name from the other nuns as being the teacher who really helped them. She was an enormously compassionate teacher because she has like the most suffering story you ever heard. It's hard to believe it's true. But it's uh, because of her suffering story, once she uh, became a nun, and it took her some time also to wake up. It's not like you become a nun and boom, you're awake. Um, although there's a few that there were. <laughs> you kind of read that. The Buddha gave a discourse and 500 people became arhats. And we kind of think it's like that. But it wasn't like that for everybody. So just to tell you Patichara's story, because she was one of the most influential nuns. She was from a well-to-do banker's family in Savati. And as was always the case, uh, she, her parents arranged a marriage for her with someone from a similar background, a similar caste. But she had fallen in love with a servant, which there's no way that would ever have been sanctioned. And so they ran away together. And they had to run like far away so that her family couldn't come find her. And her husband had even more reason to run a, want to run far away because they probably would have killed him if they'd found them. So they ran away. We're living in another city, another little town, whatever. And when she got pregnant, she wanted to go back to her family and the husband um, understandably procrastinated. So they didn't make it with the first child. When she got pregnant the second time, she really begged. So even though he procrastinated, they finally started off. She was quite pregnant. They finally started off to go back to her family. But they waited, had waited too long. So on the way, on the trip, she started going into labor. And of course, this is, this is like one of these stories. Of course, then at the same time, she's out in some field somewhere going into labor and a horrendous, horrific kind of cyclone storm starts. So her husband goes off to some distance where there's reeds and things to try and cut some reeds to make her some kind of shelter. So he's out of sight of her. And she's with the other little two-year-old and having a baby. He gets bitten by a poison snake and dies. Right. So she, of course, doesn't know what happened. She's just lying out in the field in this storm. She has the baby. She goes, well, the next day, what to do? He didn't come back. So she starts with both children, comes across his body, is like devastated, but keeps going, gets to a little river that near her parents' village where normally you could just walk across it. But the storm had been so humongous that it was a huge torrent. There's no way she could walk across with her little toddler and her baby. So the best she could do was to, to um, leave the toddler. Toddler means like a two-year-old little child. And with the newborn baby, walk across the river, put it down, go back. Yeah, you see trouble coming, right? Go back and get the other one. So while the baby's on the one side and she's in the middle of the river with the other child, a giant bird of prey comes, takes the baby. The toddler, she gets all upset. The other child gets swept away. 
So she manages to get out. She's completely, not completely, but close to crazy. Gets to her village, asks the first person she sees, where are my parents? And the, the man says, ask me anything, but don't ask me that. She goes, what do you mean? He says, well, that huge storm, it stove in their house, they were killed. That smoke you see is from their funeral pyre. So this was in the space of 24 hours. She just went completely mad, completely out of her mind. And um, so for some years, she was just, you know, wandering around, then completely out of her mind, just wearing ragged clothing. And whenever she'd get near town, people would throw things to make her go away, the better side of human nature. And at one point after some years, as she was mad and wandering around, she came to the Jeta Grove where the Buddha was teaching. And again, people on the outskirts tried to get out of here, you're crazy, go away. But of course the Buddha saw her and beckoned her to come over and just looked at her and said, sister, recover your presence of mind. And she did. That's why he was the Buddha. He could do things like that. So he did, and someone gave her a cloak, and then she sat down and said, help me, and told him her story. And he said, and this I love, because it's like the, the power of really speaking the truth, the compassionate truth, but the straight truth. You know, I could see in myself how the tendency of to think compassion, go, wow, that is unbelievably tough. No wonder you're crazy. I would be too, you know, and, and that's compassionate. But the Buddha is like, you know, real compassion. He says, I mean, I don't, don't think that you have come to someone who can help you with that. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than the water in the four oceans. He's saying this with compassion, but this is how it is. I can't change this for you. And he kept on going, he said, yet when we ourselves die, no one can help us. No kin, no teacher. When we die, no one can be there for us or help us. Even in this world, our family cannot end our suffering. So you can get that. He's not saying that in a harsh way. He's saying this is the truth of things. And she could hear it. You know, it it brought her back to her senses and it really went in. And then he told her about the Eightfold Path and the path of his teachings. And at that point, she asked for the going forth, which is, you know, to take the three refuges. And he took her to the community of nuns and she became a nun. So I love that because of the power of the compassionate speaking the truth. But you can also get a sense, at least I do, One can't speak like that unless one really knows it, you know? Like if it's intellectual and I'm saying, yeah, well, no one can help. You know, it just doesn't have the depth unless you're speaking from absolute knowing that. And from that, there's really this depth of compassion. He's saying it because it's the most helpful thing he could say. So she became a nun and um, practiced for quite some time before she awoke, and her poem is uh, one that I like very much because it describes the moment, the moment of her awakening, 
And you'll notice in it is something that uh, you hear sometimes, we're always trying to kind of give a sense of it. She's, she's moving from uh, a period of really concentrated, focused practice, and then she just kind of relaxes, and she's in an everyday activity, and in that moment, her mind wakes up. So that's in the poem, let me just read it. Um, I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I am not lazy or proud. Why have not I found peace? Can you relate? <laughs> See, that's what I mean, it's not different. Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick of the lamp down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Just that moment. You can get a sense of it, just that moment. From really strong concentration and focus to just relax, but care and present. And when the lamp went out, my mind was freed. So you can understand how she would be a, a source of great wisdom and compassionate to support, support to other women who came into the Bhikkhuni Sangha. And so she is the one whose name is mentioned the most. I'll just read you uh, one other poem from a woman named Chanda. Again, another horrible suffering one. This woman named Chanda, her husband, her parents, and her children all died in a plague. So, you know, this was a tough time. In the wars, that's like now plagues. And uh, when, when a woman had lost all her family, uh, there wasn't uh, social security, you know, or really any kind of a safety net. And so she uh, basically became a beggar just had to go from house to house begging for food because there was no family at all to support her. This is her poem, Chanda. I was in a bad way, a widow, no children, no friends, no relations to give me food and clothes. I was a beggar with a bowl and stick and wandered house to house in the heat and cold for seven years but I met a nun who had food and drink, and I went up to her and said, take me into the homeless life. She was Patachara. Out of compassion, she guided me in leaving home, encouraged me, and urged me to the highest goal. I took her advice, it wasn't wasted. There are no obsessions in my mind. I love it that the first thing Patachara did was give this starving woman food and drink. You know, that sense of compassion. And then when she said that she wanted to enter the homeless life, took her in and taught her the Dhamma. But the first thing she did was give her what she needed, food and drink. There are no obsessions in my mind. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice. 
<laughs> we all have moments of it. Remember that. Keep noticing that. Okay, which direction to go? There's so many directions I could go. Mm. I think I'll talk about older, older women first. Quite a few nuns joined when they were older. Uh, and some of them in case they, their husbands wouldn't want them uh, to become nuns. But after their husbands died, then they were able to uh, join the order. And you know, sometimes people say, in interviews, or uh, women and men, of course, they say, uh, you know, I, I started practicing, I'm so old, however old you started, and look at these people who are starting young, it's so inspiring, and I'm starting old, and is it too late for me? You know, I don't have enough time, I'll never make it. So just to see that this, uh, this I'll just, I'll talk about a couple. One, her name was Bahu Pitaka, and she uh, became a widow. She was fairly well off and had in, in this kind of two different uh, versions. In one, she had 10 children. In the other, she had 14 children. And her husband, yet her husband died before she did. <laughs> so she had to be strong. Anyway, so when her husband died and she had quite some money, she said, okay, why don't I now, I'll just divide the money rather than holding on to it. I'll divide it between all my, let's stick with 10 children, husbands and their wives, and then they'll take turns taking care of me, which was the appropriate thing in the culture that the children did take care of their elders. Um, and so she did that, and then she would, you know, she would spend a little time in one uh, son's house and go to the next daughter and husband's house and like that. But after a while, she noticed they were starting to resent her. She'd be there and they'd start muttering, well, you'd think she didn't have any other houses to go to. Why does she have to stay with us for so long? And after a while, she thought, who needs this? I'm going to go ordain. So she went and ordained with a sangha. But she was quite old by this time, elderly and rather weak. And what's interesting about her, just to let you know the the end now, the, the nuns were, the people were often described as the nun or the monk who was most known for the teaching, most known for um, wisdom or whatever. Bahu Pitaka was the one who was most recognized by the Buddha for her diligence, for her, for her perseverance. So she thought she was quite weak and she was, as a really junior nun, even though she was elderly, she would kind of wait on, take care of the other nuns, but all she could really do was bring them water. And she thought, you know, I've, I entered the order in, in my old age, so I want to be really diligent. So she would practice all night, stay up all night practicing and doing walking meditation. But because she was kind of old and weak, she was a little shaky and also tired, so she would do walking meditation all night with one hand going along the wall or holding onto the trees, you know, because she just felt too weak. But she would just keep on practicing all night. And so at one point the Buddha just kind of uh, heard about her, got some information and he kind of showed up and really just kind of beamed her with radiance and appreciation. So she became, I don't know if it's at that moment, but she became an arhat. And the Buddha said, this is the bhikkhuni, the nun, most known for her diligence, for her um, energy. So you never know. It's never too late. And in fact, a little side story, this might be apocryphal, but they said, um, 
before she was awakened, her job was, you know, bringing water to the nuns. And if you read all the suttas, you'll see with the groups of nuns and the groups of monks, it's like groups of people anywhere. All different personalities, more or less nice, more or less able to get along with each other. Really, there's lots of little, you know. If you read a lot of the Vinaya rules came about because of stuff like that. So-and-so's doing such and such, and that really, show, oh, really, is he? Okay, a rule, you know. <laughs> so, not all. <laughs> so in this case, apparently as she was waiting on the nuns, some of them weren't treating her very nicely. I don't know if they were exactly what they were doing, making fun of her or a little put-down remarks, you're too old or so. But uh, technically, in terms of unskillful speech and behavior, it's really not good karma to say or do unwholesome things to anybody, but particularly to an arhat. You don't want to insult an arhat with aversion. It's not good. And so... Um, <laughs> When she awoke, you wouldn't know, and you also don't go around talking about your own attainments, and particularly monks and nuns, it's, you just don't do that, it's not appropriate. So she's not going to show up and say, I'm an arhat, you better be nice to me now. But because of, no really, I mean, but at the same time, out of compassion, she didn't want the nuns to say something that would be for their own suffering later. So she's trying to figure out, what can I do? And so apparently, and again, this is why I say it's apocryphal, that she had developed some psychic powers. So when she was bringing them the water, she, she used her energy to, to heat it up psychically. So when they saw that, that she could do that and was bringing them hot water, that was her way of telling them, you know, out of kindness. And so then they really realized and kind of interesting, all these kind of back roads. So she was the one most appreciated by the Buddha for her perseverance, for her energy. Her poem, I don't like so much, but there's another old, similar older woman named Dhamma. <laughs> I'm going to use the other poem. I don't like all the poems. <laughs> You're getting this through me. You can read the book and read the other poems if you want your own. There's lots of them I have to choose here. Okay. But my teaching point is with Dhamma, who's another similar older woman. Again, waited till her husband's death and ordained. So her poem is describing her moment of waking up and it occurred because she was out walking with a cane and she was so weak that she fell over. So this is her poem. I wandered for alms. I leaned on a stick. My whole body was weak and trembled. Suddenly I fell down and could see clearly the misery of this body. My heart was freed. I love that. You know, so whether it's the, seeing the misery of the body getting old, the misery of our body being sick, you don't have to wait till you get old. You get sick. Just seeing instead of... We get sick. It's a chance for awakening. Is that how you felt when you got a cold last week? But I'm saying it lightly, I mean it. This is a chance to awaken. How do we choose to look at what's happening? This is the misery of the body. Seeing this, my heart was freed. That willingness to meet what's happening, of course, just with a 
with the non-judging attention and then it moves into the wider space of this is how it is. Everybody gets sick. Everybody, I mean body is body, dies. Everybody gets old. Seeing that, we can go the way of self-pity and sometimes we do, that's okay, until we really learn, oh, this is how it is. The heart can be freed. Same for them, same for us. You know? Okay, I'll tell a not such a suffering one. There's some that aren't so much suffering. This is a woman, I like it because she's very, again, very confident and gutsy. There's a woman named Punika, and her uh, role in the society was as a, a lower class servant, like. Uh, I would sound like an indentured servant, I would say, almost a slave, where she didn't have the freedom to come or go. It's not like she was working for wages. She was working for a rich family, a, a, a family that was very dedicated to the Buddha. But what's interesting is you read with Punika, and there were some others too, that these servant women, or almost slave women, actually had more freedom to come and go than the really high-caste, well-to-do women. They were kind of sequestered. They couldn't just go out and hear the Buddha speak, whereas the servant women could. So there's different stories where the servant women would go out, hear the Buddha talk, and come back and report it to the women for whom they worked, you know, And, and so they were kind of sharing the teachings in that way. So... This woman, Punika, she, uh, her job was to go and get water in the morning in the, in, the, in the river, which is very cold, hard work. And she had been going out and hearing the Buddha teach quite a bit. And she was, um, the, she was a stream enter, they say, at this point, the first stage from listening to the Buddha teach. So, as I know Bhante was talking about, one of the... Um, the fetters that's dissipated at stream entry is doubt. So at this point, her faith, her confidence in, in the truth of the Dhamma and in the power of the Dhamma to free the heart and mind was very clear and strong. And so to me, she's an example of the courage and confidence of speaking the truth of Dhamma to power. So the story and her poem is, she was down uh, in the early morning to get water for her mistress. And at that time, it was one of the beliefs of the Brahmins that in certain rivers you could wash yourself and they were like holy rivers. This wasn't the Ganges, but like that. You wash yourself and it washes away all the evil deeds you've done. Like whatever you do bad, you go wash in this river and it washes away all the bad comic results. So she was down there and uh, a Brahmin comes down to do this. And she says, so this, you'll, see, you'll hear how spunky she was. She says, I'm a water carrier. Even in the cold, I have always gone down to the water, frightened of punishment or the angry words of high-class women. But what are you afraid of, Brahmin, that makes you go down to the water? Your limbs are shaking with the bitter cold. And the, the Brahmin whose name, if I can say this, Udaka Sudika. He says, but you know why, Punika. I am doing good to prevent evil. Anyone young or old who has done something bad is freed 
by washing in water. So Punica says, who ever told you you are freed from evil by washing? The blind leading the blind. In that case, all frogs and turtles would go to heaven and water snakes and crocodiles. Thieves, executioners, and other wrongdoers would be freed from their bad karma by washing in water. If these streams carried away all your old evil, they would carry away your virtue too. You would be separated from both. Rather, don't do that thing, the fear of which leads you down to the water. Stop now, Brahman, and save your skin from the cold. Right? She's pretty spunky. And then, and he said, he, he listens to her because she has so much faith, confidence from faith, you know, knowing what she's speaking of. He says, lady, you've brought me back. I will give you the robe I bathed in. She says, keep your robe. I don't, I don't want it. <laughs> I love Punika. She says, if you are afraid of pain, if you don't like it, then do nothing evil either openly or in secret. For if you do, even if you get up and run away, you won't escape its pain. If you are afraid of pain, if you don't like it, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Train in the precepts. That is good. So of course he listened and took refuge. But I just, I love that. So then she went and uh, talked to the Buddha, and the Buddha talked to her uh, master who freed her so that she could become uh, a nun, which is why we have her poem. But just that sense of, yeah, okay, you can hear her personality. Someone else could have that confidence, that faith, and not be quite so spunky about it. But that it's really coming again from speaking truth to power, but from knowing the truth. That confidence. You see, when we have some knowing of the truth, however our personalities are, we're going to express in a way that somehow is shared in the world. You know, we share our wisdom, we share our light when we have confidence in it, when we have faith. That's why we're always encouraging you to trust your insights, to trust your practice. It's not just for you, it's for everyone that you come in contact with. Okay, I'll tell you one more not-suffering story. The woman who was known by the Buddha as the foremost in preaching, the foremost in expounding the Dhamma, her name was Dhammadina. And um, she was the wife uh, uh, of an important man named Wisaka in the town of Rajagaha and had a very happy marriage. So very settled, upper-class, well-to-do. And he went out, again, the women stayed home, the men could go out, the servants could go out. So he went out one day and he heard the Buddha teach and he got quite inspired. And he came home and usually when he came home, they would be friendly, he would eat and invite her to eat with them, he'd greet her. But this time he came home and just walked right past her without talking to her. And she said, I wonder what's wrong. Well, when we eat, he'll invite me to eat with him. We'll talk about it. But he didn't. He just ate and ignored her. So she thought, and I love this, is like, so what we do. He goes, what did I do? What's wrong? Why is he angry at me? What could it be? You know, it's like taking it all and trying to figure it out. 
But of course he wasn't. He called to her and said, you know, after hearing the Buddha, I'm so inspired, I'm really thinking about it. I think I want to renounce the world and become a bhikkhu. So if I do that, I'll give you all my wealth, all my money, I want to take care of you. What do you want to do? You could keep my money, stay here in Rajagaha. You could go back and live with your parents. I'll support whatever you want to do. So she thought about it. She said, you know, I want to renounce also. I also want to become a bhikkhuni. So he said, great, and he sent her off, you know, with, with you know, on a golden thing. How do you pronounce that? Palanquin that they carried her and in great state took her off. And she went to meet the Buddha, became a nun, went to a, a far village and practiced and be- became awakened. So after some time, don't know how, how long, uh, she happened in her travels to go back to Rajagaha and lo and behold, her husband, Misaka, hadn't, had not managed to go off and become ordained. He was still living there. But he was, he was still very, you know, inspired by the Buddha. And so he approached her, not as his uh, former wife, but as an awakened being, as an awakened nun, and just very sincerely asked her a whole series of very subtle and profound questions. And... Um, I'm not going to say them because it's quite long. It's a whole sutta in the Majjhima And it's the only sutta really that is a series of questions that it's uh, a woman, a nun, who's giving all the answers. At the end of this whole series of questions, subtle, profound ones, finally she said, okay, that's enough. Go to the Buddha and get, you know, really get the real scoop from him and if you have more questions. So, she, so he went, her ex-husband, and told the Buddha the whole thing. And the Buddha said, just as she answered, that's exactly what I would have said. Just as she said, so you should remember it. And so it's what they call the, the word of the Buddha. They call it Buddha Vachana, like the word of the Buddha. So it's become in the Majjhima a whole sutta that is Dhammadina's answer to her husband. So she had a, a more easy route. And then, her, then her, her poem is actually in the Dhammapada. So somehow she used the foremost in expressing, but really recognized in awakening and in teaching as equal with men. And in those days for a man to go to a woman to teach Dhamma was extremely unusual. And to have the Buddha say, same, same, I would have said the same, extremely unusual little poem from Dhammadina. Eager for the end of suffering, full of awareness, that's the way. When one's heart is not attached to pleasure, we say, that woman has entered the stream. Just simple. Eager for the end of suffering, full of awareness, that's the way. So Dhammadina, of course, is one of the great teachers of the other nuns. Okay, a couple of poems that I like, and these are from uh, women who after they became nuns, really had a tough time. The, the opposite of the Buddha gave a talk and 500 people became arhats. Women that really had to struggle. And I find it inspiring to know it's, you know, we think, well, in these days where the Dhamma is, you know, kind of 
going downhill and we don't have the Buddha to teach us and we struggle, but back then it wasn't like that. But for plenty of people, it was a long life's journey, even with deep commitment, even after having joined in order. So the first one is a woman named, named Sama. And she joined when her, her, her best friend, who was a queen, uh, was killed. Uh, the queen, they were both deep followers of the Buddha. So I won't go into the story of her friend who was killed, but um, so Sama became a nun, but she was suffering a lot for a long time. So this is her poem. It was 25 years since I turned away from home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. I had no peace because I did not know my own mind. Then suddenly I was shaken with dread, remembering the words of the Buddha. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. I have finished with craving. The Buddha's teaching has been done. It is the seventh day since my craving died. I had no peace because I didn't know my own mind. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. I don't know how it is for you, but I just really feel like a real person there. 25 years, I hadn't had a moment's peace. And you thought six weeks was a long time. (laughs) But you hear the commitment, the dedication it takes, you know. And of course, if she came to me, I'd say the same thing I'd say to you. I don't believe for a minute, for 25 years, you didn't have a moment's peace, you know. (laughs) For sure, there were some moments, but feels like that, feels like that. But you hear, it's tough. It takes deep, deep uh, commitment and perseverance for everyone. Another similar kind of poem, different woman, her name was Mita Kali. And she heard, before she was, she heard the Buddha preaching the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. That's the long sutta, the four foundations of awakening, of enlightenment. Just to say, can you imagine getting to hear the Buddha teach the four foundations of mindfulness? Wouldn't that be something? I guess it would be something. I mean, amazing. So she heard it, and she became a nun. And uh, the reputation was that she was actually a very difficult person. She was very angry very self-centered, this is how it's reported now, so. And uh, she changed gradually, not overnight, (laughs) but really quite angry and self-centered and struggled a lot. So this is her poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness 
before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. But you get, you know, we lose our way. Our passions use us. Forget the point of my wandering life. But the remembrance is just as close as they're forgetting, however long it's been. Same for her, same for us. So I'll just give you two more short poems. One I find humorous, and one I just like. So the humorous one is a woman who's only known as Sumangala's mother. And not very much is known about her in terms of her story, except that she clearly was a, she was a wife and a mother, and not much is known except that she was clearly, from her poem, extremely happy no longer to be living the domestic life. <laughs> we don't know what happened to her husband or son, but anyway, she's a nun. So this is her poem. <laughs> free, I am free. How glad I am to be free from my pestle. You know, pestle's the thing that grinds grain. My cooking pot seems worthless to me, and I can't even bear to look at his sun umbrella. My husband disgusts me. So I destroy greed and hate with a sizzle. And I am the same woman who goes to the foot of a tree and says to herself, ah, happiness, and meditates with happiness. <laughs> Nothing personal, guys. But <laughs> just the fact that the renunciate life has an element of deep happiness also. It's not all struggle and suffering. Happiness, just the peace of happiness. So this last poem is from a woman named Uttama. Again, not that much is known from her, but she came from a Brahmin family. And again, just describing her moment of awakening. The Buddha taught seven factors of enlightenment. They are ways to find peace and I have developed them all. I have found what is vast and empty, the unborn. It is what I've longed for. I am a true daughter of the Buddha, always finding joy in peace. I have ended the hunger of gods and humans, and I will not wander from birth to birth. I have no thought of becoming. So let us all be true daughters and sons of the Buddha. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.